All right, this is Psalm 138. It's a Psalm of David. I will praise you with my whole heart. Before the gods, I will sing praises to you. I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. In the day when I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord. When they hear the words of your mouth, yes, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. All right, our sermon text today is from Exodus. It's chapter 2. It's verses 11 through 15, and it's entitled, Shunned by His Own. Now, as I'm reading this, try to make mental pictures of what this is uh, showing in Christ. Because all of these stories like this are selected to show us something about Jesus Christ. So let's see how you do as far as what you perceive and what's being said as we go through the sermon. So uh, Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 11, it says, Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at the, their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out to the, out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. <coughs> Excuse me. Not everyone who is famous or wealthy was successful in their first attempt. History is replete with people who were ejected once or even many times before making their mark. If you listen to Rush Limbaugh in the afternoon, he'll often tell you that he was fired from many, many jobs, and now he makes you know many, many millions of dollars every single year. One famous American of the 19th century went to war as a captain, and he returned home as a private, a rather sizable demotion if you've ever been in the military. After that, he failed as a businessman. He tried being a lawyer, but it was said that he was too impractical and temperamental to be successful at that. And so he did what many crummy lawyers do, and he turned to politics, where he was defeated <laughs> in his first try for the legislature. He was then defeated in his first attempt to be nominated for Congress, defeated in his application to be commissioner of the general land office, defeated in the senatorial election of 1854, defeated in his efforts for the vice presidency in 1856, and then defeated in the senatorial election of 1858. About that time, he wrote in a letter to a friend, I am now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on the earth. Such was the life of an obscure loser named Abraham Lincoln. Until things turned the corner for him, of course. Each one of us, each one of his steps ultimately led him, whether he knew it or not, one step closer to his eventual success. 
Being rejected, then, is not the end of the story, nor does it indicate that the fault is with the individual. Sometimes extenuating circumstances are involved. This was the case with a man named Moses. He had a calling, but he was rejected by those he was called to. And the rejection of Moses only pictures a greater rejection in human history. We're in church, and there's a cross on the wall to remind us of that. Our text verse today comes from 1 John chapter 1. It's verses 11 through 13. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you have faced, or if you are facing rejection, don't let it bring you down. Instead, look at it as an opportunity to do other things until you're recognized for the potential that you do possess. This is what Moses did. This is what Christ is doing. And this is what we should do as well. In the end, it will all work out as it should. God has a plan. And if you are in Christ, then you are a part of that plan. Be confident of this and stand firm on the promises which are given to you in his superior word. And let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is one of his brethren. This is verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown. The preceding verse that we looked at last week says, And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called him Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. That was while Moses was still a young child, certainly no more than three, and quite possibly younger than that. In just one verse, the Bible has skipped over all of his adolescence and teenage years, stating that he's grown. And in fact, the New Testament, Stephen, during his speech to the ruling council, says that he is now 40 years of age. This means that a total of 37 years or more of his life, the life of this man Moses, are completely overlooked in the Bible. This is one of the many important clues found throughout Scripture that reminds us of the fact that God is not giving us a detailed record of history, but rather he is giving us specific details recorded from history. Time and again, the focus is on specific occurrences which have been selected to reveal significant points in his redemptive plans. And because of the importance of people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and so many others, one might think that detailed biographies about their lives would be appropriate. But the Bible doesn't give them. Even the life of Jesus Christ, there is scant information about his childhood. Other than the time of his birth in his very, very early childhood, there's only one recorded detail about his life, which has happens when he is 12 years of age. And after that, the next specific part of his life, which is detailed, came when he was about, as Luke says, 30 years old. By contemplating this, it makes the things that are recorded that much more special. The selected details show attentive care and call out to look over those things very carefully. Why God has so meticulously focused on the events then is what we should consider. What is it that he wants us to see? What is it that he wants us to remember? What is it that he wants us to learn? In the case of Moses, he is about to enter into a new part of his life. He will go from the high position of being in Pharaoh's household to a life of considerable difficulty and uncertainty. Why he chose this path or why he didn't decide to make this decision a little bit sooner in life isn't known. But it could be that the years of high life left a void in him which needed to be fulfilled. 
Solomon, writing in the book of Ecclesiastes in the second chapter, spent many verses writing about all of the great things that he had accomplished through his skill and his wisdom. But after his effort, he wrote these words. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled. And indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. His conclusion concerning the vain existence that we live under the sun is that life apart from God is useless, and ultimately it has no lasting point to it. It seems that Moses figured this out and desired to be a person of God and united to God's people. And this is what the author of Hebrews actually tells us. There in the 11th chapter, he says this, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. In this time of learning and growth, Moses is not at all unlike Jesus. In Luke 2.52, before he revealed himself to the people of Israel, it says this about him. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Both had long periods of unrecorded life events which molded them and which shaped them for the work that they would perform. And both of them were initially rejected by their own people. Eventually, Moses led his people out when they accepted his leadership. And someday Jesus will deliver Israel when they accept his. And so to understand that precept and what is about to occur in the coming passage, we should hear Stephen's words from Acts chapter 7 that detail these same life events. By seeing what he had to say about this portion of the life of Moses, we can then more properly comprehend what will transpire. This is about uh, seven or eight verses long. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. As Stephen said, Moses was mighty in words and deeds. It's an exacting comparison to Jesus. In Luke 24:19, while talking along the road to Emmaus, the men said that Jesus was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. Despite this, both men were rejected by their nation. Moses fled to Midian in order to continue being prepared for freeing his people, and Jesus ascended into heaven until the times of refreshing would come to pass. Knowing these things in advance, we can then more clearly sort out what lies ahead. Verse 11 continues, that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. Moses is a man of 40 years who has dwelt the majority of his life in the grand halls of Pharaoh's courts, and yet he still has a heart for his people of ethnic origin. Now, whether his adoptive mother openly shared his birth status with him or not, he did have the short time with his true mother to instill in him who he was and who his people were. He was with her until he was weaned, and that would have been enough time to ensure the bond needed to soften his heart towards his own people. 
As a wise person once said, no throne in the universe is so potent as the mother's knee for good or evil. The knees on which he was dandled and the milk which nurtured him as he developed were permanently ingrained in his young mind. And so ingrained with this indelible mark, it says that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. It is the first recorded sign of his affection for his people Israel, but it is only an outward reflection of a reality that had been with him all along. Throughout the rest of his life, this bond will only grow stronger. Even when they came to the most absurd point of rebellion against their God, he would continue to speak to them and for them and even put himself in harm's way for their sake. At the time when they made a golden calf to worship, Moses stepped forward on their behalf and he said this in the book of Exodus, you have committed a great sin, so now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Moses always held fast to his people, never forsaking them, even when he was offered his own dynasty in their place. In this, he reflects Christ Jesus, who loves his people Israel with an undying love, even despite their rebellion and their rejection of him. Here in verse 11, the word siblah is used to describe their burdens. It is the second of only six times that it's going to be used in all of scripture, and all are in the first six chapters of Exodus. And it is the same word that was first used to describe their burdens back in chapter 1, verse 11. In other words, this unusual bondage and load that was placed upon the Hebrews has been ongoing now for more than 40 years. During all of that time, Moses has been free of the afflictions. Instead, he lived in Pharaoh's house, looking at his people from a distance, and now he has come to attend to their burdens. In this, he again represents Christ, who from eternity past dwelt in the great house, which is heaven, and who left the riches and the glories of that most noble abode to come and dwell among us. And because the duration is known from the New Testament, that of 40 years, it is right to determine what the significance of the number 40 is in Scripture. From his book, Number in Scripture, E.W. Bullinger says that 40 is associated with a period of probation, trial, and chastisement. And he further refines it to be a chastisement of sons and of a covenant people. Understanding this, we can see that Moses' heart has been turned towards his people at this time in hopes of ending their time of chastisement. However, we're going to see as we continue that they will reject his advances and thus their probation will continue for another 40 years. And so it is with Christ and Israel. And so they continue this day awaiting their final deliverance. Verse 11 goes on, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. Referring back to the speech in, uh, that Stephen gave to the ruling council, we read his words about the same account. He said, and seeing one of them suffer wrong. In other words, this beating was not justified, but rather it was a malicious and spiteful beating. It's believed that the taskmaster's rods were made of a tough yet pliant type of wood that was actually imported all the way from Syria. It would have been a painful experience to be beaten with one of them. And to further highlight Moses' reasons for a response, we are again told that he is one of his brethren. But even more, he is called a Hebrew, one of his brethren. The bond is one which is deeply ingrained in him as a man. He is one of the people of God. The last time the term Hebrew was used was in the story of his nativity. There it was used twice. Here's what it said then. 
Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? He was identified with his people then, and he's identified with his people now. Now, why is this important to know? The answer is that this term, Hebrew or Ivri, is used only 34 times in the entire Old Testament, and 14 of them are in the book of Exodus, more than any other book in the entire Old Testament. Only one Samuel comes anywhere close, and that's with eight occurrences. Moses and the book of Exodus are being used to highlight the uniqueness of this group of people and the bond that should exist between them. The Hebrew people look to Abraham as their great father. They look to Jacob, who is Israel, as the family patriarch because all of the tribes descend from him. But they look to the Exodus account and to the man of Moses as their great redeemer and their prophet. It is for this reason that the uniting bond among them is that they are Hebrews, not just Israelites. They are the people of God who have crossed over, as the term Hebrew implies. Verse 12, so he looked this way and that way. These words are given to show us right here that what will occur is not a heated rage or any type of impetuous act. Rather, Moses took thoughtful consideration to stop and to review his surroundings in order to ensure that he would not be noticed. Verse 12 continues, And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian. After looking around, he took an action which is either glossed over by Jewish commentators or is hailed by them as heroic or even a patriotic act. At the same time, most Christian commentators term it impetuous, wrongful, undisciplined, terms like that. With only a few exceptions, they find it to be completely unjustifiable. And yet, from the context of Stephen's words in the New Testament to the ruling council in Acts chapter 7, it appears that this is an act of faith. Here's what Stephen said. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. Stephen seems to suggest that Moses knew that he would be used of God to deliver the Hebrews from their bondage. He was a Hebrew raised in Pharaoh's palace, and so if no other reason, he could logically believe that he had been spared from the river and raised in the wisdom of Egypt for this very purpose. In fact, just prior to the Exodus, the Lord will say this to Pharaoh concerning his own position and status. He says, but indeed for this purpose, I have raised you up, meaning God speaking to Pharaoh, that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Moses understood that time, place, and position were gifts of God to be used for God's purposes and which God uses for his own purposes. Because the Bible records that he took the time to look first, it indicates his belief that he was doing the right thing in an attempt to rescue his Hebrew brother. Regardless of this, it became an act which would involve the complete severance of his ties with Egypt and also a very lengthy severance from his Hebrew people as well. And yet, the time would be used by God to further mold him in preparation for his coming role. And it would also allow, and this is important to understand, for the continuance of God's mercy upon the people of Canaan. In Genesis chapter 15, the Lord spoke these words to Abraham. Then he said to Avram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, which is happening right now, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge, 
Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they, meaning the Israelites, shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Hebrews were not ready to be delivered, and God was not yet ready to judge the Amorites. He'd made a promise that he would be merciful for a certain amount of time. Everything is timed according to the plan of God, and if we can remember this, then we can trust that all of the things that we don't understand in our own lives are being handled exactly as they should be handled by him. Verse 12 goes on, and hid him in the sand. The word for sand here is the word chol. In the Bible, with very few exceptions, it is used as a simile which equates the sand with a great multitude of people, such as they are like the sand on the seashore. The genuine nature of the words, and hid him in the sand, show that Moses is certainly the author of this account. If anyone else had written this, they would have said that he buried him in the ground or that he had dug a hole and placed him there. But the words in the sand, because of the rarity of the use of the word literally in the Bible, show a personal knowledge of the area where it occurred, including the type of ground, that of sand. It's little details like this that show us the authenticity of what we're actually looking at. I have come to rescue you from the bondage you face. Chosen by God, I will lead you out. No longer will you languish in this place, but you shall leave with a triumphant shout. I have stepped down from a great place to meet you here and have joined myself to you as your Hebrew brother. Trust in me and have no fear. We are of the same blood and are joined to one another. The time of your redemption is surely at hand. I will lead you out of this woe-filled land. Our second thought, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Verses 13 and 14. Verse 13 begins with, And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. The New King James Version of the uh, translations of the Bible says this just right. It says, the second day. Check your Bible and see what it says. Many translators simply say, the next day. But the term is beyom hashne, on day the second. What might seem rather unimportant actually isn't. The reason is that there is another term which can mean the same thing. It's memachorat, which means on the morrow. Moses uses both of them in his writings, even in Exodus. And so there must be a reason why he chooses them as he does. In this verse, right after saying the second day, he next says that vehine, shne anashim ivrim nisim. Behold, two men, Hebrews, disputed together. There's in this the indication that we are to focus on the number two because it's listed twice in this specific manner. And so we go to Bollinger to see the meaning that we are asked to not miss. Now think of the account that's going on with this right now. Two, according to Bollinger, affirms that there is a difference. There is another, while one affirms that there is not another. The difference may be for good or for evil. And we're going to see that right in the next verse. A thing may differ from evil and be good, or it may differ from good and be evil. Hence, the number two takes a twofold coloring according to the context. It is the first number by which we can divide another. And therefore, in all its uses, we may trace this fundamental idea of division or difference. We're going to focus on that as well. The two may be, though different in character, yet one as to testimony and friendship. 
The second that comes in may be for help or deliverance, which is exactly what's happening right here. But alas, where man is concerned, this number testifies of his fall, for it is more often denotes that difference which implies opposition, enmity, and oppression. Now, this is E.W. Bollinger just doing an analysis of the number two in the Bible, and it is written all over the account that we're looking at right here. In what took a few words, Bollinger shows that concerning the number two, there is a contrast of things, and yet there is a confirmation between them. For example, there are two testaments in the Bible, old and new. They contrast. One is law, one is grace, and yet they confirm the totality of the word of God. There are two natures to Christ. There is man and there is God. And yet they confirm the incarnation. One day has daytime and it has nighttime. They contrast in darkness and in light, and yet they confirm a day's duration. Moses is asking us to look at the two accounts and to determine a contrast between them while still confirming a message that's being relayed. And so when this thought is finished, we're going to do just that. We'll continue now for now though. Verse 13 going on, and he said to one, the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Instead of the one who did wrong, the Hebrew here actually says larasha, the wicked one. Most translators though use the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which says the word adikunti, the one who did wrong. And so that's probably what your Bible says. But the Hebrew is trying to show us the contrast through its choice of the words. It is an evil act in Moses' eyes. And so he says, the wicked one. It is because of this evil act, one Hebrew fighting against another, that he steps in and he asks, why are you striking your companion? Moses is simply trying to get them to think through the issue through properly and to contemplate the bonding principles of unity and justice. In unity, he tells them that they are brethren. And in justice, he shows them that evil towards one another can only disrupt their unity. It is his first attempt to wake them up to the realization that these forces are needed in order to cast off the greater burden under which they suffer under Pharaoh. And yet they take offense at what he says. He thought that his words would lead to their liberation. But in his zeal for his people, Moses has left out the key and the principal factor in their deliverance. He has left out the God whose name they bear. In this entire chapter, the word God or Lord is never used until the very, very last paragraph. And then guess what? It's used five times. Eventually, when he's ready to lead out his people, it will be in the name of the Lord, Jehovah, that he will give to them to show that he has been chosen to bring them out of Egypt. Verse 14. Then he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Moses resided in the great house, that of Pharaoh. At the same time, the Hebrews suffered in bondage. Moses stepped down from his exalted position to come and to teach them a better way. Further, he intended to bring them out of the bondage that they were in, and yet they rejected his claim by asking, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Now, does that sound like anybody that you know? I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to read that exact same paragraph again, and I'm going to change a couple names in a couple places. Listen carefully. If we simply substitute those names in, in places in this paragraph, we can see the connection to Christ. Jesus resided in the great house, that of heaven. At the same time, Israel suffered in bondage. Jesus stepped down from his exalted position to come and teach them a better way. Further, he intended to bring them out of the bondage that they were in, and yet they rejected his claim by asking, who made you a prince and a judge over us? 
In this story, we're being asked to see the work of Christ. Verse 14 goes on. Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Now, if Moses pictures Christ and the Hebrews in Egypt picture the nation of Israel, then Egypt must picture the work of the devil, sin in a world of sin. In each person who comes to Christ, the devil is defeated. The individual Egyptian was killed by Moses for an individual Hebrew. But now the word has gotten out by the person who was saved that Moses is the one who saved him. However, instead of seeing the deliverance from the Egyptian, they see a ruler whose authority over them they don't recognize. Again, it is a picture of the work of Christ. And thus, in the book of Revelation, Jesus uses these words concerning Jews who rejected his authority throughout the church age. He says, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The Hebrews chose continued bondage in Egypt over freedom at Moses' hand. The Jews of Jesus' time chose continued bondage in sin over freedom at the work of Jesus Christ. Verse 14 goes on. So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. In order to set up a continuing parallel between the work of Christ and the life of Moses, we're shown why Moses will flee from his people and from the land of Egypt. His good deed towards his fellow Hebrews has been taken in an ill light. And not only that, it's become generally known as well. The Hebrews were not ready to accept Moses as their leader, and Israel at Christ's first advent was not yet ready to receive Jesus either. But the thing that Moses did was known, and it couldn't be hidden. Likewise, what Christ did was known, and it was something that certainly could not be hidden. Now that we're finished with this second section, we need to take a moment. We need to see the contrast between the two accounts in the first two sections. In the first, an Egyptian is beating a Hebrew and Moses took action necessary to save him. He slew the enemy and rescued his fellow countrymen. It was a positive action towards one of God's people. And it had to be received as such because the matter became known. The Bible says that Moses looked this way and that, which means that nobody else knew what had occurred. And yet the saved person told the good news of his deliverance. It is reflective, for example, of the deaf mute who was healed in uh, Mark chapter uh, 7. Here's what it says there. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. On the second day, two Hebrews were fighting and the offender is called Larasha, the wicked one. But instead of being received favorably, the wicked offender turns on him. It is reflective of those Jews at Jesus' time who laid their burdens on their own people and afflicted them and yet turned around and questioned Jesus' authority, which was clearly evident by his own actions. The contrast in what occurs is evident, and yet they confirm that Moses' actions were intended for good towards his countrymen. What has occurred is an excellent picture of the work of Christ towards his people and yet also the hostility displayed towards him by the wicked of the people, just as the Gospels record. I have come to set the captive free, and yet you fight among each other. Look to my example and come, follow me. Do not be oppressive towards your brother. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? We don't recognize your authority at all. Who do you think you are, Mr. Jesus? We are God's people, and only to him will we call. Surely, if God were your father, you would listen to me, for me he sent. But there are others who will listen. If you don't want me, then to them I will be sent. Our third thought today, the place of judgment, which is verse 15. 
Verse 15 begins with these words. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. It has to be remembered that what Pharaoh pictures here is not the same as what Pharaoh pictured during Joseph's reign. In chapter 1, it said these words about the new dynasty of Pharaoh. It said, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. This Pharaoh then is set in contrast to the Pharaoh of Joseph's time. Jesus came from heaven and he was raised by his Hebrew family, but he was also raised in this fallen world. The king of this world at Jesus' coming was Satan. That's confirmed in Luke chapter 4 where it says this, All this authority, Satan speaking to Christ, I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Upon Jesus' rejection by his people, they sought out to kill him, and they accomplished that. But death couldn't hold him. And so the pattern still rings true. The ruler of this world did seek to kill Jesus, just as Pharaoh sought to kill Moses. There is the historical record of Moses' life, and there is the pattern that it is showing us in the work of Jesus Christ. It's exciting to see these things, because it allows us to know that the plan is still being worked out for us. Verse 15 continues, but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. As all scripture is God-breathed, and because complementary passages may show things from a slightly different perspective, we should go back once again to Stephen's words about this verse. There in Acts chapter 7, he states it this way, but he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian. In Stephen's words, it shows that Moses fled at this saying, meaning at what the Hebrews said to him. In this, then, the integrity of the picture of Christ is upheld. He was rejected by his own, and thus the kingdom was not ushered in at that time, which is something that would have otherwise happened. In other words, both accounts, though stated a little bit differently by, you know, Moses as the author and uh, Stephen speaking in the New Testament. They both confirmed the work of Christ beautifully. But Christ didn't actually flee from anything in the sense of fearing. And that's a problem because we want to make sure that the picture actually matches. We don't want to make stuff up. The word used by Moses for fled is the word barach, a verb which carries the basic meaning of going through. It's not like specifically fleeing in fear. The same word in Greek in the New Testament used by Stephen means to flee but its use can include fleeing something such as fleeing from idolatry or fleeing from sin. And the Greek of this verse in the Old Testament, apo, simply means from. In other words, there is nothing here that would speak against picturing the work of Christ and everything speaking for it. In his move from Egypt, Moses is said to have dwelt in the land of Midian. The term for dwelt here is veyeshev. It literally means and sat. It's an idiom, which means the place where one dwells. The name Midian means place of judgment. And thus, it is an exact picture of the work of Christ, who departed from his kinsmen of the flesh, meaning the Jews, and went to preside over the Gentiles, where he sits in the place of judgment. This is perfectly summed up in the words of Hebrews chapter 10, which says this, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. Moses' life was sought by those who hated him, and he passed through to a Gentile location called the Place of Judgment until he would be called to subdue his enemies in the years ahead. 
And in the same like fashion, Christ's life was sought by those who hated him. But he passed through from the Hebrews to the Gentiles and is now, right now, at the right hand of God, the place of judgment until his enemies are made his footstool. And to finish out our verses today, we see one more short thought, which seems almost curious to be affixed to the verse as it is. And yet it completes the picture of the work of Christ in this passage. This is the finishing words. It says, and he sat down by a well. Unfortunately, of the 20 versions of the Bible that I read for each sermon, only two were correct. The Hebrew says that he sat down by the well, not a well. A third version at least said a certain well to show that more than just any well was being spoken of. The definite pronoun here is not a mistake. It is given to show us something very specific. Then again, it says, and sat. Moses sat or dwelt by the well. Each time a well was introduced all the way through the book of Genesis, it generally pictured an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The pattern follows here. It is the Gentile-led church of which Christ is the head, which has received his spirit during this dispensation. Moses dwelt or sat down by the well, making an exact picture of the work of Christ. We are granted his spirit because his work is complete for us. The fact that Stephen used this entire account in his speech in Acts chapter 7 shows us that he was equating it directly with the work of Christ, whom he was speaking of as he addressed Israel's leaders. But they could not see what your eyes are being opened to. Moses was rewarded several times with accounts from his life being recorded in Hebrews chapter 11, the Hall of Fame of Faith. This passage today is one of them. And the reason why is because he so perfectly mirrored the faithful work of Jesus Christ. Here's what Hebrews says. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Satan tempted Christ and he refused to be called into that unholy house. Instead, he chose to suffer affliction with and for the people of God, rather than to fall into the same trap that Adam fell into. Christ esteemed the riches of heaven much greater, and the honoring of his Father more than all of the riches of the world. Just like Moses, Christ looked to the reward. And now we have a chance, and we have a choice. We can look to the reward and we can receive the crown of life which is offered by the work of Christ. He prevailed over the devil and he alone can lead us out of the bondage of Egypt, which is the world of sin, and bring us into the holy promised land. I would hope that you have called on him and that you've received him as Lord. If you have, you are eternally saved by his work. You have been redeemed from the land of bondage and are God's child by adoption. However, if you haven't yet called on Christ, I'd like another minute to ask you to listen to how you can do it. I'll give you a couple things that you need to know. The first is that you are a sinner. That's what the Bible says. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. But there is a remedy for that. Before I get to the remedy, though, let me tell you the consequences of your sin. It says the wages of sin is death. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. But the Bible says that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world as a gift so that we could be reconciled to him through his blood. Jesus Christ is the gift of God. And if you call on him, if you call out and say, I can't save myself, 
I need you to save me. He will do it. He'll be pleased to do it. God is not in the business of condemning people. He's in the business of saving people. Condemnation is a result of our actions. Salvation is a result of God's actions. So if you've never taken the time to simply say, I need Christ in my life. I need to be forgiven of the things I've done wrong. Do it today. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Nobody is below God's grace. Nobody is outside of God's favor if they call on Jesus Christ as Lord. Okay? Our closing verse today comes from Acts chapter 3. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Because when this happens, he was speaking to Israel at the time. All right? When this happens, Christ is going to return to Israel. And that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoration of all things, which God has spoken of by the mouth of all of his holy prophets since the world began. Next week is Exodus 2. It's verses 16 through 25. Now remember, we just went from the time of Israel rejecting Christ to the beginning of the church age. This is Exodus 2, 16 through 25. So I'd like everybody to read those verses this week and to think about them. What is this telling us? I've entitled it, Seven Daughters Drawing Water from the Well. That's our fifth Exodus sermon. And I'd like you to think, what is this picturing? Because if we've gone from the, the time of the temple to the church age, then it's got to be something related to the church. It's great stuff, okay? Now, having traveled to all 50 capitals back in 2010, I preached at all 50 state capitals, I can tell you that the man who was continually shown to be a failure in his early years, Abraham Lincoln, is honored in statues and in paintings more than any other president in our history. Even if you face continual failure in your own life, there is the possibility for you to become great. So trust the Lord and let him use you for such greatness. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part those waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. I have a poem based on the uh, verses that we looked at today. It's called Shunned by His Own. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens to his eyes they were shown. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren, as he knew. So he looked this way and that way. And when he saw no one, the Egyptian he did slay and hid him in the sand, covering what he had done. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And to the one who did the wrong, he did say, why are you, your companion, striking? Then he asked inquisitively, who made you over us a prince and a judge? Do you intend to kill me? As you killed the Egyptian, do you bear me a grudge? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known, this thing about the dead. When Pharaoh heard of this, when Pharaoh of this matter heard, he sought to kill Moses in that place. But as we are told in the word, Moses fled from Pharaoh's face and dwelt in Midian's land. And he sat down by a well, as we understand. Like many great men before him recorded in the word, Moses is now used as the Bible's central figure in order to give us portraits of Jesus the Lord and the great works he wrought are seen in each picture. And as we see in this story once again, there are those who fight against what God has planned. They reject his authority and against him complain, and yet he still reaches out his loving hand. 
Let us not reject his kind offer of grace, but instead let us accept what is recorded in his word. He offers us a new home in a heavenly place, if we will just call out to Jesus as Lord. And so let us receive Jesus Christ and be reconciled to God, so that for all eternity, in his glorious presence, we will trod. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for these wonderful pictures, because they just keep reminding us of Christ just keep reminding us of Christ. We can go back to the Old Testament and we can see him and we can read the New Testament, we can see him and we can reflect on him and what he did and we can understand it in a much better way by seeing these pictures because you intended for these pictures to be seen in this light. So we thank you for that, that it gives us a fuller picture of your dear son, our precious Lord, our Savior, our God. And may he and his grace shine upon us in the week ahead Take care of us, lead us where we need to go safely, tend to our needs, and also look over those others who aren't here, but who need to be watched over and uh, to bring them back here safely again next week if it's time for them to end their vacation or their travels. And we'll be sure to give you praise and honor and glory, even for the sandspurs that we step on, because they show us that there is a contrast in the green, green grass by the uh, waters of rest We thank you for those things. We thank you that we have a chance to live in this fallen world so that we will more fully be able to appreciate the glories of heaven to come. We love you and we praise you. We exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, we're still going through in the daily devotionals the uh, the, uh, Lord's Supper, verse by verse. And I just, the more that I contemplate, the meaning of it and the significance of it and the preciousness of these words. The Lord really wants us to handle this word carefully. He talks about down here, let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself. Well, what does that mean? It means that we, we're all unworthy inherently. That's not what it's speaking of, worthiness. It's speaking of a worthy manner. We need to remember that the Lord died so that we could do this and remember his work and that we could meet here and we could truly, in our hearts, believe. I mean, we, we mentally assent that Christ is coming again, but we need to, in our hearts, when we're really in desperate times, say, you know, the Lord really is coming again. And we need to move that mental assent down to our heart and say, it's okay. Whatever's happening in my life this week or, you know, what's happening to my brother or my mother or whatever, it's all taken care of. He knows the end from the beginning. What a great God. I, what, what a great God. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. Then he would have given thanks over it. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. He would have blessed this as well. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melecha Olam Borei Peri Hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, 
Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. John and Jay, the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this precious table. Thank you for the shed blood of Christ that restores us to you. Thank you that he is coming again, and may it be so. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.